So we're going to do what we do now each Sunday. We'll look at a passage from God's Word, and we'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to John chapter 4 today. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. And if you're able, I'm going to ask if you would just stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'll read this for us. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. John writes this. He, that is Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank out of himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband. And come here. And the woman answered him and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now she tries to kind of divert the conversation away from husbands. Let's move on from marriage. Tries to enter into a bit of a theological debate with Jesus, but Jesus doesn't kind of get caught up in it. So finally, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Jump down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll jump into this, what is one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament. Spirit of God, would you just illumine now the preaching of your word, open our eyes and ears and hearts to what it is you want to speak to us through it. I ask for clarity. I ask for uh, humility that we would sit underneath this word and not over it in judgment. 
God, accomplish the purpose for which you have sent this word, for you have told us your word does not return to you void. It does accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Accomplish that in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. Those of you unfamiliar with this, these are the opening lines to one of William Shakespeare's best-known and loved plays, Romeo and Juliet, the tale of two star-crossed lovers who, who come from warring families and whose love and eventual deaths, in the end, helps to reconcile this age-old feud between them. Now, interestingly, Shakespeare never actually tells us what it was that began the the feud between these warring families, the Montagues and Capulets, uh, that made them so hate each other. And they really did hate each other. Even the servants from the different families hated the other servants. It was quite comprehensive. The play just simply begins with hating one another as what these two families have always done and what they will always do. That's, that's just the way things are. And I don't know about you if it's the same for you, but as I look around our world today, I feel like I see and feel so much of that same kind of fixed mindset, that same kind of fixed way of thinking leading to the exact same kinds of wars and conflicts, not just between families, but between countries, between races, between genders, between neighbors and husbands and wives and kids and their families and friends and on and on and on. These these blinders that we intentionally choose so often to put on that won't allow us to see any other perspective other than that's just the way things are. That's just what that person or or those people are like. That's just how things are now between us. Have you seen that? Have have you felt that and and heard that kind of thing too? Have have you experienced the, the hopelessness of trying to scale those impossibly high walls of division, or maybe felt the sting of rebuke for even questioning the unspoken assumption that those walls should just stay exactly where they are. Thanks very much. We began a new teaching series last Sunday entitled Next Stop, walking us through our new vision statement. The the marquee on on the bus or, or subway train basically stating exactly where it is we believe As a people, continually being renewed by the gospel, we will be ministers of gospel renewal in our city, in our world, that brings about personal conversion, strengthened relationships, authentic community, and a a flourishing society. Last week, we looked at the heart of that vision, which is a people continually being renewed by the gospel, seeing themselves and living out that calling as ministers of gospel renewal, then followed by the first marker, which was kind of telling us we could how, how we would determine whether or not we're moving in the right direction, personal conversion. That is, seeing people come into a reconciled relationship with God through faith in Jesus. We covered a lot uh, last week. There's just way too much for me to recap now today. So if you missed that message, I would encourage you, everything's online. Go back today, this week. Catch up on, on where it is we've been and where it is we are going uh, in that first message. 
But the next marker from our vision that I want to go through today and focus on deals directly with that fixed mindset, that fixed way of thinking that affects so many of our relationships, keeps us stuck in those fixed mindsets, keeps us warring and divided from one another. For the hope is that as we live out our calling as ministers of gospel renewal, something we'll also see taking place in our city and our world is strengthened relationships. We would see strengthened relationships also taking place. That's how we know we're moving in the right direction. And by that, what we mean is everything from uh, families that are torn apart brought back together. Uh, marriages on the brink of divorce brought back into reconciled relationship with, with one another. Friends who've been torn apart by division and whatnot, those friendships healed and restored, as well as all kinds of other relationships, strengthening relationships across racial and cultural, gender, socioeconomic boundaries, all centered on and then building out from a reconciled relationship with God ourselves that then leads to boundary-crossing, division-canceling work in our relationships with others. And very helpfully, I think what we have here in this passage today is a real-time picture of what both of those things looks like, where we see Jesus intentionally seeking out and entering into a reconciling, boundary-crossing relationship with this woman drawing water from a well that then, in turn, transforms her relationships with people that she's being divided from and in conflict with. And so in order to help us track this kind of relationship-strengthening work of God through the ministry of Jesus, by His grace and by His mercy, so that we too might be able to see that same reconciling work take place in and through us in our city and world, I want to look at just two things from our passage today. I want to show you the worldwide mission of Jesus and then the thirst-quenching gift of Jesus. The worldwide mission and the thirst-quenching mission, the thirst-quenching gift of Jesus. So if you closed your Bibles, Bible app, whatever it is, would you open it again with me to that passage? Follow along with me, John chapter 4, as we continue to define and describe in the clearest way possible where it is we feel God is taking us as a church, as well as to understand these markers that will help us to know whether or not we're moving in the right direction. Okay, so let's look first of all at the worldwide mission of Jesus. The worldwide mission of Jesus. Now, this point begins with the testimony of this woman at the well, as well as the rest of the people from this Samaritan village that she had told about Jesus that we read about there in verse 42. If you want to look there with me. <clears throat> Here, the people say to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, which tells us that that's what the woman was saying. This, this Jesus is the Savior of the world, and they're saying, we believe it too. Which, by the way, as D.A. Carson notes, what they say here is not in any way to disparage the woman's testimony, but to confirm it. They're basically saying, we, know, we don't only believe now just because of what you said. We've heard Jesus ourselves, and we think what you said about him is true. He truly is the Savior of the world. But what I want to look at together with you for just a few minutes here is what it takes to bring about that testimony, as well as this reconciled relationship for both the woman at the well as well as the Samaritan village, namely the boundary-crossing, division-canceling work of Jesus in their lives. And where you see that, first of all, 
is with what seems to be like the most meaningless throwaway details of this story to most of us. There in verse 6 and 7. As Jesus encounters a woman drawing water from the well at the sixth hour of the day, and he asks her for a drink. But you can be honest, like that just seems like those details are, sound like the beginning of the most boring story ever. Um, wow, drawing water from a well, and he asks her for a drink. Whew. What did she say? Like it seems like, like who cares? But when you understand these details correctly and, and what they mean, they're incredibly significant, actually. First of all, when you come to understand what it means that this woman was a Samaritan. Verse, uh, second half of verse 9, John already kind of hints at the problem when he says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But the reality is far more than just like not shopping at each other's garage sales or being invited to their birthday parties. These two peoples, the Jews and the Samaritans, were as bitter and heated and hated enemies as the Montagues and Capulets in Shakespeare's play. They, they, they simply hated each other. History tells us these Samaritans were descendants of the northern tribes of Israel who were assimilated under Assyrian rule when they came in and took over the northern tribes. And through intermarrying, now these tribes were considered half-breeds, not true Jews any longer. So they are a mixed race, no longer true Israelites. They had assisted foreign armies during the course of history in invading Jerusalem, trying to take them over. They desecrated their temple. So they were seen as traitors, and they developed their own hybrid, heterodox sort of practice of Judaism and built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. So they were seen as defiled, rejected by God, by any self-respecting Jew. So to put it very simply, already there were cultural and racial boundaries that Jesus is crossing in order to have this conversation with this woman. Secondly, the details are significant when you see that this Samaritan was a woman, for in this time in respectable Jewish society at this point in history, a man would never speak publicly to a woman out in, in the street who wasn't either his wife or someone that he already knew personally. It was seen as incredibly suspicious, totally something that was disrespectful both to the woman as well as to the man. So it just wasn't done. So on top of cultural boundaries, Jesus is also crossing gender boundaries with this conversation. Finally, the fact that this Samaritan woman is drawing water by herself at the hottest part of the day, it was the, as the sixth hour, that was noon, reveals that this Samaritan woman was a moral and social outcast. She could not be seen with the other women when they would normally come to draw water early in the morning or later in the evening. <clears throat> now we learn why that is later in verse 16 and following when Jesus asks the woman, go call your husband and come back. And she reveals, actually, well, he reveals to her what he knows about her, that she's actually had five previous husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. Now, maybe you'd say, okay, well, listen, we all, we, we've all got our own stories. That's, that's, that's her thing. Let's not sit in judgment over her. And yet, something we need to know historically is that at this time in history, almost no town or village has over 100 people. So you can imagine like, just how known like, every aspect of this woman's life is in this town that she's living in. They, know, they probably know every single man that she used to be married to, as well as who she's living with now. So she's just shunned. She's just thought of as like, that's not the woman you interact with at all. So along with crossing cultural, racial, gender boundaries, Jesus is also crossing moral boundaries, societal boundaries to even be seen with this woman, let alone have a conversation with her. So here we are, dealing with 
racial boundaries, uh, gender boundaries, cultural and, and also kind of societal and moral boundaries, you know, things we don't deal with, of course, in our society today. But back in Jesus' day, these are the kind of issues that they had to deal with. Uh, I hope you can pick up the sarcasm. This is incredibly relevant right now. These are all the same boundaries we're still dealing with 2,000 years later. And yet what's clear is that although Jesus had every reason to stay stuck right behind these boundaries as that's just the way things are between Jews and Gentiles. Nothing I can do. That's just the way these conversations go with a woman. I can't speak to her. That's just the kind of woman this is. He had every reason to stay behind those boundaries. And yet clearly Jesus wasn't concerned in the least by any of these boundaries that he was supposed to be restricted by. He just waltzes right in, and then just sort of like, oh, sorry, was there supposed to be a boundary there? Hmm. Don't care. He, he just comes right in and begins this conversation. And, and if you look here, although many others in the town benefit from Jesus' boundary-crossing interaction with her, what we learn is both from verse 4 when it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria, as well as the fact that he sent 12 guys to buy food for 13 people, this boundary-crossing conversation with a socially outcast Samaritan woman was Jesus' exact purpose and plan all along. He'd come to meet with her on purpose. We're going to dig more into Jesus' conversation with, the mo- with, this, with this woman in a moment, but as it relates to the rest of these Samaritan villagers and their testimony as well, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Whether any of their pasts were as shady or as well-known as this woman's or not, we see that Jesus is, once again, he's crossing cultural, racial boundaries to engage with them as well. He just jumps right into them. And not just for the day, he stays for two more days, supposedly defiling himself to even have meetings or any kind of conversations with these Gentiles. Pastor and author Bruce Milne notes this, On the lips of Samaritans, Savior of the world has its own special nuance. For centuries, they've been told they were shut out from God's mercy, second-class people in the eyes of the Jewish leadership down in Jerusalem, and as long as they clung stubbornly to their own tradition and religious credentials, the stigma continued to apply. But now, having experienced the inclusive love of Jesus for them, despite their disadvantages, it was not sufficient. It was not a difficult step for the Samaritans to arrive at the conviction that this same love was big enough wide enough and undiscriminating enough to embrace the whole world. And when we include everything that we looked at last week, namely about how those that God has reconciled to himself through faith in Jesus, he's now given a ministry of reconciliation to, as we consider what it means, first of all, for our church in particular, to have strengthened and renewed relationships with the city and world around us, I wonder if Jesus' example from this passage doesn't reveal some, well, some continued work of gospel renewal that God still needs to do in us as a church to help us get beyond some of the boundaries that keep us stuck in in those fixed mindsets and as a result with weakened and, and, and distant relationships from the people around us. Because I don't know, we, we rightly critique the people of Israel as having abandoned their calling. When we see that instead of being a light to the nations like they were supposed to be, they ended up seeing their role as God's people as nothing more than just kind of setting up boundaries to guard their nationalistic identity from being defiled by Gentile people. We just need to guard this thing 
That's, that's our mission. Instead of being a light to the nations like they were supposed to be, but how often do we do this exact same thing as a church today? How often have we rebuilt our own dividing walls of hostility that Jesus tore down in his death on the cross and turned the boundary-crossing, reconciling message of a a passage like John 3.16, a message for the whole world, for whosoever will come, and we've turned that message into God so loved those who vote conservative. God so loved... Uh, those who are kind of morally conservative people, those who are pro-life people, those who are straight people, those who are white people, those people who drive electric cars and recycle. God so loved people like us that if we should believe, then we can no longer face condemnation. We've turned it into this message that's just for a select view of people when, as these Samaritans rightly testify, Jesus is the Savior of the world, of all people. There is no one restricted from his offer. The cry of God to all his creation from Isaiah 45 was and remains, turn to me and be saved, all you the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I'll never forget a message I heard from a conference speaker a number of years ago talking about the boundary-crossing, cross-cultural work of a missionary that takes place when they go to another culture and they have to, to, to all the, the process they have to go through in order to learn how to engage in that culture. But then noting how in so many of our North American churches, he said, in order to hear about Jesus, people have to come into our places of comfort. They have to learn our songs and our special Christian language and our traditions in order to do that. And the question he rightly asked is, who's being the missionary in that scenario? Who's actually crossing boundaries in order to do this, to use the language of our, what we're talking about today? Who are we asking to cross boundaries in order to hear this message of reconciliation freely offered to all? If we're ever going to be those people who hear the upward call to be outward sent and see strengthened relationships in our city and world with those that God has placed us with and around as a church, we're going to need to change our mindset about how it is we see those people that God has called us to minister to. We can't can't see the world as the enemy, as those that we need to put up boundaries to protect ourselves from. We're never going to see these strengthening relationships come about or see personal conversion. We're never going to see the kingdom come if we continue to hide behind these boundaries of that's just the way things are. We're going to need to follow the example of our Savior who, who laid aside what was comfortable for him, what was familiar and safe and was willing to step across boundaries. We're going to need to be willing to step across some of those boundaries Some of which, if we're honest, we just made up and we just set up ourselves in order to feel safer and more comfortable. We're going to need to set those aside and meet people where they're at, in their places of comfort, in their places of familiarity, and in their places of need. Because those are the places where transformations like this one that Jesus has in our passage are most likely to take place. Not the only place, but it's where they're most likely to take place.
And once we've come to understand that worldwide boundary-crossing work that Jesus calls us to join him in as his church, we're then in a far better position both to experience as well as to offer the thirst-quenching gift of Jesus. Let's look at this, the thirst-quenching gift of Jesus. This, this part's going to take just a little bit of work, but if you'll, if you'll follow with me, just continue tracking. I think what you're going to see is just the powerfully transforming effect that this can have on all of your relationships, just as I've been experiencing this in my own relationships as well. And where you see this powerful relational key is in the midst of this whole kind of back-and-forth conversation Jesus has with this woman at the well. And it's a whole conversation, if you remember, it's all about water. We're talking a lot about water. If you remember, verse 7, Jesus asks this woman for a drink as she's drawing water in the heat in the day. And to which she responds there in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman from Samaria? And we talked about all the baggage behind that kind of dismissive reply. But look again at Jesus' response to her in verse 10 when he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, the woman tries to blow Jesus off again, point out the the ridiculousness of his offer. You don't even have anything to draw with. Where are you going to get water from? But but Jesus is setting the stage for a relationship-strengthening purpose that he began this conversation to begin with. And so in talking to her about the gift of God and describing it as living water, he's using a powerful metaphor that would have immediately connected and resonated with with someone living in a dry, arid climate like the Middle East. Like water is just an essential resource to all of us, but especially in climates like this. But look finally at Jesus' description of this gift of living water in verse 13. He says to her, everyone who drinks this water, this water from the well, they'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, this is where the account gets kind of weird. takes kind of a hard left turn, which none of us (laughs) expect, least of which this woman. Because you look at verse 15, she, she misunderstands the metaphor which Jesus is trying to draw between you know, physical thirst and, and, and the kind of spiritually parched nature of every human heart, apart from a relationship with Jesus. But she's, she's still asking for the water. She's saying, yeah, give me this water. That would have been the perfect opportunity. If you're sitting there having that conversation, you'd be like, let me tell you about it. Instead, rather than just explain what he means, Jesus asks this woman what appears to be the most random, inappropriate question possible. There in verse 16, go call your husband. Come back. We'll talk about the water. Pulling the cover off what is for her the most deepest place of shame, brokenness, and regret, and crossing a boundary, really, that here feels cruel. It feels uncalled for. Like, I don't know if you've read this passage a hundred times, or this is the first time you're hearing it, but but every time I come to it again, I kind of just wince at Jesus' social, like, foolishness here his his clumsily inflicted wounding of this woman made all the worse i think if he already knows what her past is what is he doing like like we're just we're just sitting there watching this unfold and we're just like jesus what are you doing why would you even ask her such an insensitive hurtful question hasn't she suffered enough already and yet what i miss 
every time that leads me to continue responding like that is that lovingly embedded in his question is the reality that Jesus is still talking to this woman about water. What he's ultimately saying to her is what you are seeking to find in relationship after relationship with men is water that's going to continue to leave you thirsty. Only I can give you what you're truly seeking. Only in me will you find what will truly satisfy the thirst of your soul. That's what he's talking about. And as we see in verse 26, in revealing who it is that's asking for a drink, the Messiah, and giving her the water that truly satisfies this woman is suddenly radically transformed in the way that she now relates to others. She, she leaves behind her jar to draw water, which I think in, in this kind of symbolic way shows she's leaving behind drinking from that water that doesn't satisfy anymore. She runs into town to the very people that she was estranged from, that, that she wanted nothing to do with, and they wanted nothing to do with her, and now she's willingly, gladly engaging with them, telling them about this message of reconciliation, this living water that they too can experience for themselves, and this man, could he be the Messiah? And my hope and prayer for us is that as you've heard me talking about this experience of the woman at the well with Jesus, that this whole time the Spirit of God has been speaking to your heart as well as we've been talking about this, saying that you would hear the voice of God saying to you this morning, go call your husband. Go call your spouse, your, your boyfriend or girlfriend, your kid. Bring me your career. Bring me your education, your, your sex life. Bring me whatever it is you try to present on your Instagram feed. Bring me every person, place, or thing that you're looking to to satisfy the thirst of your soul that continues to leave you thirsty and drink from the water that I will give you instead. Because as it relates to strength and relationships that we're hoping to see come about as a result of living as ministers of gospel renewal in our city and our world, I hope you can see there's a direct parallel between what it is that we're looking to to satisfy the thirst of our souls and the strength of our relationships. There's a direct correlation between the two of them. As Jesus' half-brother James says in James 4, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Or to use the language that we're talking about today in this marker, what is it that keeps you relationally distant? What is it that keeps you frustrated and stuck in that mindset of that's how things are and hustling for connection? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Because, listen, here's the hard reality. As long as I'm looking to my spouse or to my kids, or to my friendships, or to the opinions of others, to satisfy the thirst of my soul, I will remain in a constant state of thirst, a constant state of frustration, and I will either drive that person away or crush them under the weight of expectation. But do you see, when, when the thirst of my soul is at last satisfied by the living water that only Jesus can give, I'm actually then freed to love those people. I'm free to engage deeply in those relationships in a way that I never was possible before because now I'm no longer looking to them to satisfy a thirst that only Jesus can satisfy. 
I'm, I'm freed to enter into those strengthened relationships by satisfying my thirst in an eternal source that can actually satisfy my thirst. So what is it? What is it for you? Where, where have you been drinking? What are the, what are the water, what's the water jar that Jesus is calling you to finally lay down so that you can enjoy the thirst-quenching water that only he can give you? Hopefully you see and believe what Jesus is calling you to is not to sacrifice those relationships. He's not calling you to give them up as some kind of payment for the gift. Listen, if you want the living water, you got to give me those things. That's not what he's doing. He's offering you the chance to finally enjoy them in their fullness. He's offering you the freedom to have strengthened and more deeply enjoyable relationships than was ever possible before. And besides, because it's the gift of God, there's no payment necessary. It's a gift. And it's the chance to enjoy a strength of relationships that was never possible before. I, I hope you see, first of all, what it was that Jesus was up to here in this boundary-crossing conversation, encounter with this woman at the well. But I hope you see as well just how relevant this is, this encounter is to seeing this next marker from our vision statement realized. Realized in our relationships inside the church as well as for every relationship we seek to form and strengthen outside of the church. We, we need to understand this concept in order to live it out. As I said when we began, whether it's your own marriage, your own friendships, your own relationships that you need strengthened, or, or those that, that you see outside of, of your friends, your neighbors, family that you're ministering to in your homes and neighborhoods, university campuses, or wherever it is that God has placed you in our city. All of that, wherever it is you need to see this strength happen, it's all centered on and then builds out from a reconciled relationship with God first ourselves. It starts there being willing to, to tear down the boundaries and the fixed mindsets that keep us divided, drinking first from the source of living water ourselves that will then lead to boundary-crossing, division-canceling work in our relationships with others. It all begins with coming and continuing to come to our boundary-crossing, division-canceling Savior. The one who cried out, I thirst from the cross so that you and I would never again have to experience the thirst that could never be satisfied. He made that possible for all of us. Our, our Savior, whose boundary-crossing, division-canceling love and death brought about the end to an eternal conflict, not just a conflict between two families, and whose offer to whosoever will come and drink remains come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why spend money on that which is not bread or your labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. God, help us to do this. We'll never do it on our own. But praise God that because of Jesus and his 
work. It's not possible. And we can see this come about in our own relationships and in those in our city and our world. Amen. Amen.